Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I have a friend named Tom who would describe to me his airline conversations. You know those that you have with that passenger seated next to you. Sometimes the conversation uh, would start when he would look uh, to the neighbor and say next to him, what do you do for a living? And then that exchange takes place. A lot of you are familiar with that. Tom would uh, sometimes, when the question came back to him, Tom's answer was sometimes this. I'm a revolutionary. This was pre-9-11, so he could probably get away with that. I don't know that he's done it since. He said, but I'm a revolutionary. And then letting that hang in the air for a bit, uh, inevitably there would be something to follow. And from his own lips, it was something, well, yes, actually... I introduce college students to Jesus Christ and stand back and watch the revolution occur. That was his way of saying what he did for a living. He worked on a college campus, it was a campus ministry, but he saw that it was more than simply gathering people together, but recognizing the fact that when Jesus shows up, something happens. That was the point, and it led to a number of significant conversations, you might imagine. The fact is that that's true, that when Jesus shows up, something happens. It happens in your life. It happens in this world when Jesus shows up. We're going to see that in this text in some very glaring ways. But before we get to it, I want to step into this um, in this regard. Because... I can recognize in my own life, and maybe you will as well, that there are things in my life and in this world that that I wish were different. We prayed about that a moment ago. Things that I wish were different. There are some things even in my own life that I wish were different. I can long, I can see something that has, has yet to occur. Many things that have yet to occur. And so can you in my life <laughs> and yours. In your own. As we think about it, it is true that we can long and we can imagine something. For a lot of us, it's a little renovation project. You know, uh, some of you homeowners have been through or are considering that renovation project. It might be as simple as new grout in the bathroom, or it might be that screened in back porch that you've always wanted. There's renovation projects. Sometimes it's taking something that's broken and making it new. Sometimes it's adding on something that is not yet. But there's renovation projects that we could rattle off, and even on our own personal 
spiritual renovation projects that we might like to see occur. Do you know something? When you watch Jesus as he interacts with people, and we're going to see that here in this one, when Jesus shows up, he often has more in mind than we do. He often steps in and says, I see your renovation project, but that wall has to go. (laughs) We've got to not just paint over. We've got to undo. And that's precisely what we find in this passage. Jesus comes on the scene, and there's something more that needs to occur than has ever dawned on those present here. He always seems to have more in mind because he's the one who knows what we need. He is the one who knows what's upside down and we don't even know it. He's the one that knows that there are things in our lives that may be slowly, if quietly, robbing us of the life we were intended to live. So we step into this with him. And what we find here is that in Jesus we find our real hope. That's what we're going to get here. Jesus is our real hope. He is the one who never leaves things as they are. But he puts in order the things that must be ordered. In our own lives. And in a very explicit way in this narrative that we'll look at this morning. We're going to go at it this way. We're going to look at what Jesus finds, why he responds the way he does, and then how people respond to him. What, why, and how. Uh, The scene you uh, may recognize if you were here last week, Nate was taking us into this chapter and right up to this scene. It is Jesus' royal entry into Jerusalem, which we typically mark and celebrate uh, as we draw near to Easter and resurrection. It's that last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, his royal entry. Pilgrims, you remember, are streaming into the city for Passover preparation. It is a big event. It is a noisy town. And there are people that weren't there the day before. And there are more on their way. And soon after Jesus' arrival into the city, Mark tells us it was the very next day. He enters the temple precinct. The temple precinct was more than simply the building. It was everything around it. And there was the temple where the worship occurred and the sacrifices were offered. And then there were places leading up to that. And it's filled with bustling activity and noise and smells and sounds that... Um, or you can only, you can, you can begin to taste and feel and hear as you step into this passage. But what Jesus finds through all the crowd and all the noise and all the smells is he sees, and we see it in this text, we see a little phrase, he sees those who sold. Did you notice that phrase? There are people in the midst of this worshiping throng, preparing for worship, who were selling things. Normally, uh, the animal merchants were, were parked over on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, looking over the little valley, the little ridge that led to the temple and where worship occurred. But normally, that's where they were. But over time, and we don't know how long this took, but they had made their way from the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and they had set up shop in the temple courts. What was uh, important, because you, you didn't want to come all this way, you could have brought your own animal for the sacrifice, 
But you didn't want to do all that and get all that far only to find out that your animal was not qualified. So what you found on the slopes of Mount Olives and now the temple courts is certified grade A sacrifices. Acceptable. You can, you can be sure that this will be acceptable. Well, so you had the money changers and they had made their move from the slopes right into the temple precinct. In addition, we find what we call, what, what is described as money changers. For reasons uh, that you can begin to understand, with all kinds of currency going, going floating around in the culture, they said, well, what is the currency that we will accept? And what they determined was the coins from Tyre, from the city of Tyre, were the ones that were accepted in the temple worship. So whatever you brought with you, you had to exchange for, again, the certified acceptable coins with which you could then purchase your certified acceptable sacrifice. And all of this, you see, had moved into the temple courts. The problem here, you can begin to feel, is there's some corrupt commercial activity. You had to buy a license to sell those things. You paid the officials. And some of that money that was given to the officials ended up in the pockets of the high priests. That's been noted and recognized. There was some corruption added, just layers, not much, but enough to pad the pockets of the chief priests. Um, but, but it wasn't just that. That's, that's bad, but there's other things that go on as well that hindered the real worship of God's people. And I've already alluded to it. There's, there's noise and there's activity that get in the way. It would be like trying to do more than one thing in this room today. That even if it weren't acceptable that we do the transactions, that, that something distracts us from what we've come to do. And that's as big of another big problem. You see, Israel had understood that when they come to the first, the, the, the tabernacle, the tent, the portable worship arena that went with the people of Israel on their, on their journeys, and then the sanctuaries that were set up when they entered the promised land, uh, Joshua established a, a, a sanctuary at Shiloh. It became the, the main sanctuary. There were others where you could worship, but there was a principal sanctuary at Shiloh. And then those become the forerunners of this temple that is now in Jerusalem, the city of David. It's into those temple courts and out of that religious history of worship in a place, the place where heaven and earth come together. That was what the temple was. That's what, the, that's what the tabernacle was. That was the pillar of cloud and the smoke that lived in it. It was the presence of God. And so they understood that when you come to the tabernacle and then the sanctuary and now the temple, you come into the presence of God. The place where heaven and earth meet. That's, the, that's what it is that is occurring there and what it has devolved into over time. So you can begin to see, uh, that that's what Jesus found, but you can begin to see why he reacts the way he does. Why he steps in and he expresses what might be called a righteous indignation. You know, there is, an, there is a kind of anger that is fitting and appropriate. 
that flows out of the very character of God. There is a righteous anger. It's not like mine, which gets triggered by bad drivers. It's not like yours, which gets triggered by all sorts of lesser things. It's, it's never spills over into the, you've offended me, and I, I need my way, and that there's a sinful, selfish attachment to it. God's righteous anger flows out of the fact that you have offended the righteous one, the one who is righteous. There is a righteous indignation that ultimately leads to this whole climax of this week, and that is Christ on a cross. But, but a righteous anger is, is shows up here in the very decisive action that he takes. Mark's longer version uh, tells us that he began, he came in, he, began, he took tables and started flipping them over with the, with the coins flying left and right and all around, all over the floor, throwing tables and driving them out and by one account with a whip. There's a righteous anger that is not the meek and mild Jesus that we sometimes are left with. No, there is a meek and a mild aspect. There's a gracious nature. And, and if there's any word that summarizes Christ, it would be gracious. But that graciousness does not exclude a kind of righteous anger that we see here. He's not being two-faced. He's being God himself. He is entering his own temple. He, the Lord of the temple, is now coming in with this decisive action, as it says here, began to drive down. We don't know how long it took, probably not too long. But he comes in with decisive action and he comes in with prophetic words. Well, there's a sense in which all of Jesus' words are prophetic because they are telling forth that kind of prophecy, the forth telling, not, not necessarily foretelling in this case, but telling forth declaring truth, and he takes prophetic words, in this case, words of Joel and words of David from the Old Testament, their scriptures, and he runs those word pictures out to those religious officials that are scrambling now. And he says, as the coins are still bouncing on the floor, he says these words, you have taken my house, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. When they hear the word den of robbers, they know exactly what he's talking about. That frick, a cave of robbers, is another way of putting it, you know, where people hide out. You've taken my house of prayer and made it a den of robbers. That language comes right out of Jeremiah chapter 7, and they knew it. They knew that passage. They knew that what he was doing was he was saying, you remember Jeremiah 7? That's occurring here where Jeremiah the prophet is standing at the gate of, an, of, of the temple and declaring to the Judeans that have gathered together, your lawlessness and your idolatry do not belong here and don't expect this to be a safe house for that. Those are hard words that Jeremiah spoke. The weeping prophet. <laughs> he spoke those words through tears. Just as Jesus here speaks these words through the same kind of commitment to the people as Jeremiah had. You need to know this, he is saying. 
that this den of robbers that was there, that, that, that they knew that that sanctuary was destroyed. And what they heard with this phrase, den of robbers, was this indictment that what happened then may happen here. Interestingly, Jesus, in another passage, says, take this temple and destroy it, and in three days I will raise it, referring to his own person, which is a little foretaste of what's going on here. When he gets the attention of the people and he says, you, you've made this a den of robbers, and they know exactly. And the indictment for them, friends, probably should be a warning to us. The indictment of them should be a warning for us. And the reason I say that is because that religious hypocrisy, which all of us turn up our nose at, when we see hypocrisy, even this culture, anything that looks like hypocrisy or two-faced or less than authentic, it smells in this culture. Just ask Brian Williams. When, when something appears to be or sounds different than it is, we recognize that. Children are great about this, of recognizing when parents say one thing and do another. Don't do what I do, do what I say. There's the way. I can't get there, but you do. When, when, there's, there, when there's a religious hypocrisy, it's the worst kind of hypocrisy is what Jesus is getting at here. And it's a warning to us because I know my own heart. I don't know yours, but I know mine. And I know the hypocrisy that resides there. And it brings me up short. And it wants, and it makes my heart want to hear what Jesus says to me. With all of the stuff that makes its home in my life, that would discredit me and disqualify me and bar me from his house of prayer. When he says, my house, he's, he's talking about uh, another passage, and they would have recognized this too. My house is a house of prayer. That's language we heard it earlier this morning. Did you know? From Isaiah 56. Where the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through his prophet says, foreigners will join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. And I will bring these to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It's not just that what we do when we gather here is that we are to pray. That would be a sermon all by itself. And that would be a grand label for Cornerstone Prayers. That group of people at Third Church, you know, they pray. That's a, they pray. But that's not all that Jesus is driving home. And the people in this room that day understood it. In the temple courts, they understood that when Jesus says, my house of prayer, they would have known. This is a house of prayer for all nations, including those Gentiles. Those Gentiles who are supposed to be gathered here in this temple court. That's where he was standing. 
the place where Gentiles were being brought into the covenant, into the, into the hope of the gospel. What we know is the hope of the gospel. But he says there will be a day when men and women from, from every tribe and every tongue will gather together in this place. And you've taken this place that was meant to be a place of prayer for them. And you've turned it into a den of robbers. In this very place that is meant to be the, the, the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham that you will be a blessing to all nations. Not just those that gather in the name of Yahweh the Jews that gather here on this temple mount, but people from all nations and all tribes. Jesus standing there watching what was occurring and saying, it's because of this grand promise, this grand story of redemption that you are stepping into, that you are stepping onto by your practices here, by your religious hypocrisy, and you're missing the story. And that's exactly what God says to me and he says to us when he comes into our lives. He said, don't miss the story. Don't step on the story, but step into it. Did you notice the responses? How people responded? It's pretty glaring. There were some that began then that day to further the plots that had already begun behind closed doors. To, to take his life. But what we see in this passage is that there's another group that has joined that enterprise. It's not just the scribes and the Pharisees, but leaders from the people. Some of those that had been with him were now opposed to him. Because when you start throwing money and ta turning tables around in the temple, you have crossed a line. And it may be that that opposition began to swell around this, this event. We don't know why there was not an immediate uh, response on the part, public response, why he was not just pulled away then, except that he had quoted their scriptures. He had reminded them of who they were, of God's promises. And so the opposition is one of the things. It's a collision of two worlds. His world and theirs, and there's a collision there, and there's something is going to come of it. In that case, they began to redouble their efforts, and we know that he was soon arrested. That's one group, but there's another here. And you see that too, don't you, at the end of verse 48? There were those who were then hanging on his words. There were so many people hanging on his words that the religious authorities couldn't act. There were people that heard his words and were attuned to them, that were paying attention and gathering others together because he spoke as one who had authority. We, we read that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, these great words, not this occasion, but earlier at the beginning of his public ministry, when Jesus finished these sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know, scribes, like a lot of us, we can repeat things. I do a lot of that. I, I, I find what other people have said that I like, and I, and I rephrase it, or I, I borrow it you know, to make it my own at times, trying to give credit where credit is due. But when Jesus comes, he comes 
speaking differently with authority because guess what? That's who he is. He is the author. He is the truth. And he is the true temple. He's the true temple. He comes into this scene not simply as Lord of the temple, but as the true temple. And until we see that, we will always look for a third way. Not outright opposition most of the time, although some of us are pretty good at that stiff arm. Not always hanging on his words, but we would rather, we find a third way and try to live there. But you cannot live there very long, very well. You can't live very long under the cloak of religious hypocrisy because eventually you recognize the odor coming from your own heart and you despise it. But neither can you live very long as your own authority. Because how's that working for you? How long does it take for our wisdom to really show us our wisdom to show itself as foolishness? Do you remember how wise you were when you were 15? <laughs> Apologies to the 15-year-olds. But as time goes by, we recognize that what we thought was wise and good and true and livable turned out to be a little naive, a little short-sighted. And when I recognize that, I'm ready to hang on somebody else's words. We will do that when we recognize, and only when we recognize, that Jesus is the true temple. Who comes into this place, who himself is the one, it will be written later, was the one who divided, the dividing wall was torn down. Jesus' death on the cross a few days from now is what destroyed the dividing wall. So there was no more temple. There was no more court of the Gentiles. That in Christ we come and in Him alone we, do we come before a holy heavenly Father. In Him we find joy and delight. In Him we find the newness of the world to come. In our Sunday school class in this room we're studying the book of Acts and we saw again, we're reminded this morning, that when, that when God shows up in the book of Acts, early, early Acts, resurrection, ascension, the Spirit comes, where does it come? It does not come on the religious officials. It does not come into the rabbinical schools. It comes upon those who had been present with Jesus, had been in His presence, had seen Him, that had interacted with Him. That Spirit comes into this world, the true temple being reshaped and reformed, not behind walls. This might be a house of prayer, but it is not the temple. It is not where heaven and earth meet in these walls. Heaven and earth meets in Christ and His residence in your life where heaven and earth come together and the new world is birthed and takes shape out of your lives, out of our lives, indwelt by His Spirit. The dividing wall is torn down and through Christ we have access into that great hope. A hope 
that does not leave us where we are. A hope that turns right things up. That sets things in their order and in their place. And in the very center of the picture, the very center of our hope, is the one who gave his life. The one who died for my religious hypocrisy. And the one whose righteous robes clothe me. Not because I deserve it. In spite of the fact that I don't. It's by grace. It's the hope that we have that there's a true temple. His name is Jesus. And he is here with us. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to step into that temple this day as we ponder this grand story that you've made us, but that you do not leave us in the brokenness of this world, a world that is not what we long for. And we're living lives that, we, that only approximate at our best what you have intended. But your Spirit's work in us is to reclaim and to restore, to renew, making all things new. And we long for that, and we celebrate and delight in the fact that we stand in that reality today. Lord, uh, come to us. Lord, that we might be a people who hang on your words. Words of life. Words that are restorative. Words that meet us where we are. And help us to see you in all your beauty. And when we do, we are changed. It's in Christ's name that we come. Amen.